climax of the book. I've said that word too many times. That's okay. Um, you're just Lee Teabing, and I get I, it. I couldn't think of a uh, Jesus Christ <laughs> synonym. Yes. How many Aperol spritzes have you had? <laughs> this is my. I had half of one. This is my three quarter of the. the <laughs> Welcome to the Dan Brown Code. I'm Lena. I am Forrest. And, uh... This is part four of the Da Vinci Code. That's right. Uh, chapters 61 through 80. There's, uh, some more lecturing. There's an exciting, uh, meeting of three of our main characters and an aerial escape. And also some more people on planes because... What's a novel without two simultaneous plots of characters being on planes? There's also some, uh skepticism thrown out as to who the teacher is so mm -hmm. that's exciting uh we're getting more to the meat of the plot because uh again dan brown likes to just save things yeah because that's what writing well is. he found out that climaxes come at the end of a book and he's like ah oh, that's when you reveal all the information that you could have been revealing earlier and made a different more exciting climax but instead just you know telling people the dumb secret is the climax of the book I um there's a lot of that like uh, foreshadowing for no reason, or I guess cliffhangers for no reason, where he's like, then he saw the next thing and it and blew his mind, the then immediately the it's a, yeah, don't like it. Okay, let's get into it. Chapter 61, Princess Sophie. Are you going to read it to us? Again, I'm going to read the whole chapter. <laughs> this podcast is once again an audiobook that's not legal. We get uh, a little bit more lecture here, right? little bit. Yeah, because at the end of the last chapter, Sophie was kind of starting to tie together everything she just learned about the bloodline of Jesus and decided that maybe she was a descendant of Jesus. And Robert's like, slow your roll, you're not that special. <laughs> uh, Sonier's not a Merovingian name, which... Like, there's very little credible evidence that anything's a Merovingian name, so who knows? They probably had lots of kids, though. Yeah, like, I mean... Guarantee, I, I promise you, the Merovingian kings had a lot of kids, and there's someone around with their DNA. Yeah. Um, more eye mention, the fervent green eyes, I guess. It talks about other people who were... Who 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 made a lot of references to Da Vinci and the Secret Feminine, right? Yeah, and the Grail story. Yeah, and the Grail story. Um, so we talk about... The Hunchback of Notre Dame and uh, the Magic Flute. I love the Magic Flute, and I Magic Flute's pretty good. It's, it's the first opera I saw. Yeah, me too. When I was a kid, um, and I took a class actually where we watched all of the Magic Flute on YouTube. It was a class in the history of Western thought and okay. political philosophy, and we were talking about like Masonic symbols and Enlightenment. And so, okay, it's an extraordinarily Masonic. Did uh, it tell you all about the Grail? No. <laughs> no, um, I mean, it, uh, your professor didn't because your professor was a fool, probably. Uh, he's he's like the greatest man I've ever met, but whatever. <laughs> you're thinking of Robert Langdon. Shout out Dr. Paul Carey. I know you're not going to listen to this, but thanks for your letters of rec and, you know, for helping me with my first thesis. You're the best. So Let's as see. a person who's been on Twitter in the last like six months, uh, I'm sure you can't have helped but run across the musings and thoughts of one Dr. Jordan Peterson. Um, a notable fraud and idiot psychologist and misogynist out of Toronto. I think I've actually blocked it out. Well, bless you. Uh, <laughs> but a lot of his thinking about... He's 
I cannot help but think of him when I read Dan Brown books now because he has the same sort of wild-eyed approach to symbology where just like if something's a symbol of something in one place it therefore is always that symbol every single time it appears right and there are incredible videos of this man on youtube taking like 10 minutes to explain a one minute scene of pinocchio and like pressing play on his lecture (laughs) screen so he can walk you through and talk to about like all the shit happening in the scene in pinocchio (laughs) and then robert langdon does it here he talks about Walt Disney infusing hidden messages and symbolism in his art. Yeah, he talks about uh, Walt Disney being a uniquely gifted artist. And anyone who's seen the Drunk History episode about Walt Disney knows that the only gift he had was stealing. Yeah. Well, and anti-Semitism. And anti-Semitism. He says he was a, a noted member of secret societies, and the only secret society he was really a member of is, is the Nazi, the Nazi party? society. <laughs> That's really cool. Um, but... Did you also know, whoa, Mike stands falling down, um, that you don't need a background in symbolism to understand that Snow White, a princess who fell from grace after partaking of a poisoned apple, was a clear allusion to the downfall of Eve in the Garden of Eden? Fall from grace? She fell asleep, yo. Uh, she fell from grace and then that man kissed her. Um, or that Princess Aurora, codenamed Rose which we've been talking about a lot and hidden deep in the forest to protect her from the clutches of the evil witch, which if you're trying to protect the sacred feminine, it probably wouldn't be from a fucking witch. Yeah. Whose main power is jealousy, both snow white and, uh, I guess maleficent. They're like main. Oh, okay. I mean, I mean, if you don't watch the, the Angelina Jolie, maleficent, I have not watched the Angelina Jolie. Maleficent. That's fine. That, um, the, I'm going to talk about it in a second, <laughs> but in the original Disney films, their main driver is jealousy, both of them, um, which is extraordinarily misogynistic because, you know, like, why do anything if it's not out of spite for another woman, right? Um, anyway, back to the book that we like a lot. Um, and then Tevin comes in and says, uh, You've been, you have not been honest with me, which is, I swear to God, a line straight, straight out of National Treasure. And I know National Treasure was made after this. So it's likely that that movie bit off this. That seems likely. But National Treasure is better than this book. Yeah. So Langdon tells Lee that they're being framed, which is sort of true. It's like accidentally true. No one's actually intentionally framing Robert Langdon. It just so happened that it looks like well, he did it. Hmm. Right. Because we don't know who's, who's the teacher and who's trying to do what. No, but no one's trying to frame her out because, like, the teacher didn't know that Sonier was going to write down all this shit and P.S. find Robert Langdon. Yeah. So that's the only reason Robert Langdon's there at all. Mm-hmm. Like, as far as the police were supposed to know, these people were going to be dead. And they're like, that's a weird thing to happen. These four people <laughs> dying and then they would be none the wiser. Silas is about to snap. He's chilling in the corner. That's him in the corner. That's him in the spotlight. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Is he, is he already here? But yeah, he's in 62. Yeah, he's he's outside listening in mm-hmm. in the thick brush. He's he's ready to snap. He's ready to go in and like like shoot some motherfuckers and like really really do it, you know. Yeah, but he noticed a change of mood inside because in order to kind of get the heat off of himself, Robert Langdon and Sophie spill the beans that they know where the keystone is so mm-hmm. that Tebing won't like immediately call the cops on them. Right. He also tells Remy not to call the cops on them. So that's yes. nice. This is the first time that Robert Langdon suspects the church of being behind these murders, which I feel ridicu- is ridiculous. Um, because who the fuck else cares about the Holy Grail? Well, I mean, but he knows the Pope, and he knows the Pope's a nice guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, someone in the church 
Well, he knows the Pope. <laughs> he's still got that thing. He's still got that uh, the diagramma, doesn't he? Yes. He just has to give it back it's, when he it's dies. It's probably among his other looted artifacts in his home. <laughs> Man, that bird song is coming through loud and clear. It's going to sound really nice. Oh, good. Yeah. It's, a, it's a nice bird this time. Last time it was like some horrible... Like, <laughs> this time it's like a nice tweety bird. Do you have something to say? Um, no, just that we get the whole priory hierarchy reiterated to us, and um, Teabing's like, it sounds like this is the church doing this, and Langdon's like, no, that could not possibly be. But then he sort of gets at least halfway convinced. Yeah. Uh, there's a bit here where we talk about, like, why would they do this? Why would the church do it now? And it's something about the millennial and the age of Pisces and the age of, uh, I don't know, what age are we in now? Well, so I I didn't I meant to look this up and I forgot to because we are leaving the age, age of Aquarius. Of, we're leaving the age of Pisces. Is Pisces a fish god? Goddess? Uh, she's a nymph, I think. Fish god. Okay, I didn't know that. I I just there is a question about Jeopardy about the constellation. We got my dad and I got it wrong, even though my dad's like a astronomy guy. It's embarrassing. Mm. Um, but we're entering the age of Aquarius as we all learn from the musical hair. That's confusing to me because. In the calendar, Aquarius comes before Pisces. It's the one directly before Pisces. Um, I don't know sir. how any of the horoscope shit works, so <laughs> I can't tell you. Uh, I guess the ages move backwards. I guess we're moving into the it age of Capricorn be. next, which sucks. Yeah, but I mean, the ages are long as hell, so yeah. we're going to be long dead by the time we get to that. You that don't one. know that. I mean, I have a sneaking suspicion. <laughs> um. So, and he's, and he, uh, so Robert's like, why now? And, and, uh, Lee Teabing is like, look around you. People are less religious every day. And I'm like, could we do anything else in these damn books? Like, I feel like recording this podcast is going to be more fun once we've moved away from the plot of people are less religious now and the church is scared. Like these two books have the same plot. That's true. Yeah. And origin kind of does too. Yeah. But but uh, origin brings in a new dumb thing, but so get excited about that one for in, in, in several year. months. Yeah. What the fuck happens in this in this <laughs> bullshit chapter? I read it a day ago and I don't remember what happened to <laughs> I it. read this last night too. Um I, I don't know. People aren't as religious anymore. And uh what and he talks about an astrological symbologist, which I don't think is a real thing. And um It seems like it's She says, Well, how did and and, and T Bing says, How did you get this? And she's like, Oh, the she she's like, okay. Teabing says, how did you get the box and the keystone? And uh, it's in a vault. She says, like, my grandfather gave me the key before he died. You know, the the key to the the vault. And I don't think that's right. because I mean, he did place it, but she didn't receive it anyway. Basically, he's like, the keystone's under your couch. That's yeah. what happens in this chapter. Yes. And then Silas is like, okay, uh, let's, uh, let's pop some motherfuckers and get this keystone. Well, he's right? been instructed to... Enter the house, take the keystone, and hurt nobody. But then he undoes the safety. So That's true. But I think he'd just be, make, you know. Precautions. Getting ready for warning shots. 63. Damn. 62 felt really long. Even though we I mean, it was, it. it was long because it was all rehashed of information we already knew. Except now there's like this dawn of the Age of Aquarius thing, which is just there. So that way... I think we're supposed to assume that's why Arin Garosa has chosen now that he has this deadline. Mm-hmm. I think we're supposed to assume like, oh, his five months were going to be the date where they were going to release all these papers. Yeah. 
and you know the catholic church was going to fall because of a trove of papers which they say like there's some other reasons that like the catholic church might have fallen and it like doesn't is the thing yeah i mean in today's age of of information like there is plenty of reasons to doubt the catholic church like this has bothered me about origin too where it's like the church will fall if this information gets out yeah, it's the, like what this, is it? the church isn't gonna fall you don't understand like faith is a, is it's not about new information yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's something like a core part of your identity there have been studies done on this even if it's like verifiably falsified yeah your reaction is to like get 18 times more hardcore about it that's right and you know the unveiling of like your pe- people's faith isn't based on believing that whatever's in the bible is completely irrefutable like if 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 new information comes in it doesn't undermine their belief yeah. in in the truth of whatever religious text and, like, a lot of very religious religious scholars you know talk a lot about oh so there's a separation between the historical figure of jesus and the biblical figure of jesus and like you can talk about the things in the gospels that contradict one another because yeah. like there's just no way to, I mean, a, a number of exciting theologians have spent a lot of weird time trying to like fully rectify all the things in the uh, gospels to make one coherent narrative. But like, there isn't one. Yeah. It's very clearly four different works written by four different people trying to accomplish four different things. And theologians know that. And yeah. like they've, they had this conversation for centuries and, and many of them remain religious. I went to a, oh, I hate that I'm saying this. I went to a talk by Richard Dawkins because my boyfriend <laughs> wanted to go. And it was literally the worst time I've ever had in my life. It was the whitest room I've ever sat in. It was extraordinarily racist and just stupid. Like, he would be there and like, ho, ho, ho. Like, look at these things that contradict each other in the yeah. Bible. And I'm like, you think you'd go talk to a rabbi he doesn't know that? Like, it's like if I walked into... So those motherfuckers take notes. <laughs> yeah. It's like if I walked into Richard Dawkins' office and was like, okay, hear me out. Gravity. Huh? Oh, fuck <laughs> my entire way of life is ruined now right this like, is terrible the the audacity the arrogance yeah the I, mean, I, had, I had a, i had a brief stint early in college of being like a reddit atheist um and then like very rapidly i was like oh no this sucks <laughs> this is terrible um i've since fixed my boyfriend so that's good yeah I hope he doesn't hear this. Anyway. I thought he listened now. <laughs> no, uh, Derek listens, but David does not. David, okay. You can see where I crossed those two names over. Yeah. <laughs> Chapter no, 63, we're with Lieutenant one. Collet, and he is also at the Teabing estate of Chateau Grand Guignol or whatever. And he's at the bottom of the driveway trying to figure out whether he should make his move. But Captain Fash told him not to go in until Captain Fash was there because he wants the glory. Right. Um, he's also maybe curious if maybe Bezufash doesn't have his man. And he's a little yes. hesitant, you know, to go after this. Because as he's standing there, so they find the car that Silas presumably drove there, which is a nice, like, black town car. The engine's still warm. But then he also, some men spot in the trees, this armored car Mm -hmm. that he recognizes from earlier when he got played by the bank director. Well, he says, he sees the Audi and he says that must be how LinkedIn got here. But Mm -hmm. like, don't they know that there was a tracker in the armored vehicle and that's why they're here? I wouldn't put that much uh, thought into it. (laughs) He might have just gotten a tip that said, oh, this is where Langdon is. 
and yeah. not like a full like we've received information from the bank. Okay. I, if you think about it for too long, it's going to fall apart. Well, guess who thought about it for too long? I and mean, then I have to close not the Dan book. Brown. <laughs> <laughs> so they see the Audi, and then they see the um, armored vehicle, and he remembers that he was played by Vernet, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, then he's like, well, okay, well, then who drove the Audi? Um, and who else is here? And then he wonders, like, why would Sophie help the kill- her grandfather's killer? Like, the suspected... Uh, man who 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 killed her grandfather, which is a fair question. It is. Collet is asking the right questions here. He is a good detective. I like Collet. We keep hearing I mean, a lot we knew about. He's a good detective because of the Rolex. Where he's like, hmm. Mm-hmm. So like, I mean, he's still he's still a young gun. Like he's not. He's got a future though. Yeah, better than Fash, who we've not seen do any good detective. Fash work so has far. done very little <laughs> detective work. <laughs> And uh, we get a little cutaway, one of Dan Brown's favorite literary devices, the two-paragraph setting change prior to a new chapter, where Bishop Aringarosa is flying, and he's airsick, and he's sad that things have gone wrong, and we find out that he is in contact with Bezu Fash, because he's hoping that Bezu Fash can fix it. Mm-hmm. So is he the teacher? We don't know. Anyone could... Well, I think we know Aringarosa is not the teacher. Yeah. Because Aringarosa has been talking to the teacher. I mean, Bezu Fash. Oh, Bezu Fash. Yes, Bezu Fash could be the teacher. Or Verne could be the teacher. Verne could be the teacher. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, chapter 64, T-Bings on the Devon. Are they all on the Devon now, or did Robert and Sophie leave the think, Devon? No, they, they stood up, because remember they had to stand up To get and the go box to... from under the seat. Well, they went, okay, so what happened was... Oh, they went was, to the study. They went to the study, and they came back into the room, and then uh, T-Bing left with Remy, and then they came back... And they pointed over to the divan, and Teeping went and sat on the divan. That's God, where we're at. Noises off as <laughs> far as court, court blocking. <laughs> you know the our high school did noises off. I yeah, wasn't that's, in that's it. Why I know the title of the oh, play. Okay. <laughs> did you see it? I think so. I yeah, because one of my friends, a couple of my friends were in it. Okay. Man, did you hear that the rose is Magdalene? Because if you didn't. I've got a spoiler alert for you. The Rose is Mary Magdalene. <laughs> and is the Holy Grail. And it's the Holy Grail, yeah, which yeah. is Mary Magdalene, which is the Rose. Teeping is like on one. This is the best day of his whole fucking life. Yeah. Yeah. This is better than his knighthood. This is better than anything. Yeah. He gets to see the cryptex. And he's like, that looks familiar. And I still didn't research to see if it's actually a Da Vinci invention or whether it's just a Dan Brown invention. I still didn't look it up. Yeah, I don't care. Whoa, we've been uh, shirking our duties. <laughs> I mean, I'll look it up right now. And my see the reason I didn't, Lena. I answered the most phone calls of anybody in my fucking office this week. I mean, I answered twenty percent <laughs> of all incoming phone calls, and I hated every fucking one of them. I'm so sorry. Hold on, give me give me two minutes. I'm gonna yeah. tell you about this. Um, I don't think this is real. Yeah, that's, it seemed. Well, it's a clever idea. Way to go, Dan Brown. It's so dark. The con of man on this website. <laughs> I'm going to get that tattooed on my chest. Yeah. <laughs> I can't stop thinking I, about I, it. I, I honestly briefly considered getting a Mickey Mouse watch like tattooed on my wrist. Uh, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Just get a little Mickey Mouse on your wrist. I, I think if I get a tattoo, at least in my current line of work, I can't get it anywhere where I, you'd be able to see it like below a sleeve, like halfway down my arm. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to get like a little evil eye on my wrist, but I don't know if you can be a lawyer with a wrist tattoo. I mean, there are like some punk lawyers, but like... Depend- I want to be a judge, though. I was gonna say, depending on the kind of jobs you want, probably not. <laughs> yeah, we'll figure it out. So, on the Devon, um, 
you know, everyone's making connections in their heads between roses, grails, compasses, le cleft de voûte. And meanwhile, Robert is fucking around with the box that the cryptex came in, and he's looking at this beautiful inlaid wooden rose, and he remembers the phrase hidden beneath the rose, sub rosa, secret. And he's like, man, what, what's what's in the box? What's in the fucking <laughs> box? <laughs> and he finds a little pinhole on the underside of the lid, and you can push out the rose and reveal some writing. Mm-hmm. The characters look vaguely Semitic. Vaguely Semitic. And then... Uh, uh, we're going to talk about that later. I know. And he gets whacked in the back of the head and yeah. blacks out. Um, I want to watch the movie. I want to watch Tom Hanks like poke a thing yeah. with another thing and get... And then see a pale ghost hovering over him clutching a gun. <sighs> they really hate all ghost. those people. I remembered the second pun that uh, Pope Gregory said about the English. What is it? So the first one was the... Um, you know, non angli said angali. And uh, also, uh, alleluia. Uh, yeah, and so the last one, so, so yeah, he starts off, uh, who are these people? Oh, they're angli, they're English. It's non angli said angali. They're, they're not English, they're angels. And then he's like, where do they come from? And mm-hmm. he's, and he's told, oh, they're from Deira, which is a kingdom in modern day, like, northern Wales-ish, I think. Mm-hmm. And he says, oh, we must, uh, deliver them from we must deliver them day era, which is from the wrath of God. Um, <laughs> and then he's like, who's the king there? And they said, Allie. And they said, Hallelujah. <laughs> I want to be a pun based Pope. It would be pretty good. Could you do it? No, I, I think I lack the, uh, political skills necessary to become a Pope mm. and also the religious faith necessary to become the Pope. <laughs> um, okay. 65. It's the first time Sophie's been at gunpoint ever in her life. He has long white hair, which is... I thought he had a buzz cut. I don't know why I thought that. I don't know that either. <laughs> I guess I sort of thought that he would have, like, been tonsured. Like a the, the monk thing where the top of your head is shaved. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, he's got long hair. He's a soccer player. Do you know why they do that? soccer. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Do you know why they do that? They, the, the, the tonsure? Yeah. I should and I don't. Is it so that you can be closer to God? I mean, I, th- I think it's just an actual, like, physical marker of your distinct status. Okay. But there might also be a religious explanation. Is it mimicking the wisdom that comes with age? I don't think so. I think it is. Uh, it might be. <laughs> um, Remy is not in, in the scene. They're like, where's Remy? Didn't he hear Robert like pass out? Man, is Remy the teacher? You know, probably not. <laughs> that's, that's what I thought the first time I was reading the book. I thought I was clever as a 12 year old. Where I was like, oh, Remy's the teacher. I, <laughs> it I, was I, the I, butler. <laughs> I see through this. Um, and he's, so T-Bing is dealing with, so Sophie's at gunpoint. T-Bing's like, you're bleeding. Like, why are you limping? Yeah. And uh, the, the monk is like, you're also limping. And it's like, wow, ouch. I mean, he's not limping. He's in a wheelchair, right? No, he oh, has he's crutches. crutches. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, God. Do you think uh, I'd be able to have better reading comprehension <laughs> at some point? <laughs> in my defense, I was not entirely sober when I was doing the reading. <laughs> I w- it was so late. It was like 1 a.m. I was so tired. Um, I told myself at when I got to 70, I could stop, and then I could do some stretches, yeah. and then I could come back. That was my reward for that going halfway through. Um, so he, he tells T-Bing to stand up and give it to him, and he's like, standing is difficult for me. Yeah. Um, as you see, I have a disability. And he's like, yeah, exactly. Like I don't That's want you like, coming for me. No funny um, business. And T-Bing is like, only the worthy can unlock the stone. And Silas is like, you know what? Fuck off. Okay, I'm worthy. 
Look yeah. at look at my cassock. I killed four motherfuckers, five <laughs> motherfuckers, and counting counting um, the, sisters Sandrine. Yes, yeah, right, Sandrine. Um, but uh, I guess okay. Correct me if I'm wrong. Teabing th- tosses it lightly toward the divan and uh, like slides forward and like whacks him with a metal crush against a ceviche, which S- Silas. It's, never, it's, it's, it's unclear to me. Kaliki. If it's if it's if it's like pronounced in classical Latin, it's Kalike, but I don't think it's pronounced in classical Latin, so I have to expect it's Silis. How. It's, it is, it's Silas. It's Silas. Okay. Silas. Silas. Sil- fucking hell. Silas wears a Silas. Fuck <laughs> off. Okay. Um, and so it crushes the, the, the spikes into his thigh and it makes him crumple to his knees because it hurts a lot because he's already very damaged. So yeah, his- so, so Teabing gets up, he kind of sways on his feet and like, oh my God, I'm afraid I'm going to drop it because of my infirmity. Mm-hmm. And then Silas steps forward as if he's going to grab the stone from him. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then Teabing, I think, I think pretends to lose his balance and then hits the Silas with his crutch. So it rams these barbs into Silas's thigh, and the cylinder does fall, but I think it's caught before any. No, it falls in- onto the um onto the couch. Okay, it tumbles from his palm onto the couch. Onto the couch, and uh, he he shoots, but it, the shot hits the floor. Yeah, the pistol discharges with a deafening roar, and then Sophie kicks him in the jaw, so he's out. Down for the count. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, Kalei can hear all this uh, kerfuffle from the driveway. Or at least the gunshot. Yes. Um, and it freaks him out, and he's like, okay, we've got to go in. A gun yeah, yeah it's, I think even um, in this bizarre version of whatever France's legal system may be, if you're a cop sitting at the bottom of the driveway, you hear a gun go off when you know there's want of criminals inside. Um, even if your boss tells you to wait for him, you probably have to go in. Yeah. They go in. There's no stealth anymore. They're just like, let's do it, you know? Um, Remy runs in, and he's like, oh, my God, what happened? Um, so they tie up uh, Silas. and yeah, and Robert Langdon's slowly coming, too. Yeah, and T-Bing is like, they always underestimate me. You know what? I know I was very upset about T-Bing last, last chapter, for good reason. But he's the motherfucking G in this section. But what about... So... <laughs> Langdon asks Sohu what happened, and Teabing says, You were rescued by a knight brandishing an Excalibur made by Acme Orthopedic. Look, look. <laughs> He's a little extra, okay? But as I've, I've said before, I can appreciate some extraness in my Dan Brown character. That's fair. Because otherwise you're boring as fuck, like all the women, and like Robert Langdon. That is true. So yeah, Teabing um, did some detective work and noticed the blood going through the robe, which is why he knew where the Salise belt was to hit it with his crutch. That's why he knew, yeah. because he saw the blood through the robe. And Not t- for any other reason that this man would be wearing a Salise belt. That's right. So don't, like, go thinking about it too hard. <laughs> um, anyway, they're like, okay, Opus Day is trying to find the Holy Grail. And Jibing is like, why? And it's like, you, we just talked about why, you yeah. know? Um, and so Robert quickly tells them about the rose inlay with the with the Semitic words on it. And then they hear sirens approaching, so they've got a dip. Yep. And then a cool chapter happens. Yeah, it's 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 there's some hijinks. It's a little home alone. I like it a lot. Um, Kalei walks in, and he hears a commotion upstairs. 
he goes upstairs, he and, goes sees, upstairs yeah. and sees like the console for an intercom system that lists all the rooms of the house. Yeah, and he can hear voices, and then a car starting. Mm-hmm. And he's like, okay, where could the car be? And he's like reading, and he realizes it must be in the barn. So they go down to the barn, and a, a car is driving away. Yeah. And well, he can't see the car driving away. No, but I think he heard it. He hears the fading sounds of car engine. Yeah. And uh, there's a bunch of beautiful cars, because he prefers a different kind of horsepower, that mm-hmm. T-Bang. In the barn, he finds that their intercom is set to the guest bedroom upstairs. Mm -hmm. So he knows he was drawn upstairs by the commotion in the barn because he thought it was coming from upstairs. So he's been fooled and just wasting too much time upstairs. And he got to the barn late and now they've made their escape. That's right. Um, And then he's like, they won't get too far. These these are all sports cars. They're all sports cars. They're driving off across these fields into the woods behind the estate. So clearly they can't get that far. You know, your Rolls Royce isn't going to fare too well across these rugged fields except the key that's missing is to chapter 67 a range rover (laughs) man what color is the range rover um java black pearl sounds beautiful (laughs) i i like it a lot actually uh i looked it up do you know about its transmission what kind of drives on that thing standard what about the headlights High strength polypropylene lamps. Yeah, what are the fittings on the back? They're rear light cluster fittings. Where's the steering wheel? On the right. Wow, like for an, an England person. Yeah. Dan Brown has read too much Thomas Clancy in his life, is what I'm saying so, to you. Hold on. Maybe Thomas Clancy has has read too much Dan Brown, don't you think? I mean, Tom Clancy is writing novels before Dan Brown. That's yeah. that's why The Hunt for Red October, the, one of the greatest movies ever made, came out in like 91, 89? I don't know. This is Java Black Pearl. It's like a pearlized black that kind of glows brown in the light. It's very nice. That's nice. I think my dad had a car that color. Huh. It was not a Range Rover. <laughs> okay. It was like a Subaru or something. <laughs> um, I think it should be Javanese Black Pearl. But Java meaning coffee because of the brown undertone. Oh, Java black pearl, not a Java black pearl. That's right. So not like the ship from the movie. (laughs) (laughs) No, not like the ship from the movie. It's a very loose podcast today. It's honestly, I'm really fucking shot after this week. It's, you know, the middle of the day, the sun is shining, the birds are no longer chirping. The sun is shining, the grass is green, the orange and palm trees sway. There's never been such a day in Beverly Hills, L.A., but Lena, is December the 24th, and I'm longing to be up north. <laughs> I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. <laughs> you don't not everyone knows. <laughs> not everyone knows there's a verse before the main part of white Christmas, and it's that. Because you only ever hear, you never even know that it's white Christmas at the mall until he starts singing, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. Yeah, I mean, the problem The problem is that, like, all songs written before, like, 1950 were these weird songs from musicals where, like, the main song are these very nice A-A-B-A form things, and mm-hmm. then before is just some amorphous bullshit verse. Blue Skies has one, and it's terrible. I don't know what that one is. They're in the Range Rover. <laughs> They're in the Range Rover. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to take this pause point to refresh my Aperol. Okay. So they're in the Range Rover. They're in the woods. The lights are off because that's how you do. And we learned that in the last book, right? What? I beat it. 
Okay, yes. When did we learn about headlights being off in Angels and Demons? Uh, when the Hassassin was uh, trying to be inconspicuous, so he was yes. the only person with his headlights on in a yes. big city. Yeah. Yes. This one makes more sense, though. They're driving across a dark field into some dark woods. <laughs> yes. They're not driving through a metropolis during a busy time. <laughs> Um, it's pitch black and Remy's doing like a pretty good job of, of navigating. So that's good. Yeah. Remy's one of those kind of like extreme manservants like Artemis Fowl has Mm -hmm. where, uh, you know, he can, he can do all kinds of badass shit. He can drive the Range Rover in the dark through the woods without headlights, Mm -hmm. but he can also like cook up a mean, uh, uh, lasagna. (laughs) (laughs) French onion soup. (laughs) Or, or, or or lasagna. (laughs) Um, and then they turn the fog lights on and, uh, Silas is in the back just chilling. Uh, he wakes up in a second and T-Bing is like, I will shoot you. Do not move. And so he doesn't. They're surprised that the Opus Dei person, Silas, found them. Uh, so he must have a contact either within the judicial police or within the Zurich depository. That must be it. Must be one of those two things. Mm -hmm. Certainly not a third one. Certainly not a third one. And uh, at this point, they're far enough away from the estate where Remy can turn on the headlights and, or at least the, at least the fog lights and get a little better view. Oh, I didn't listen. (laughs) (laughs) I swear, Um, I swear I normally listen to you. I know. (laughs) So they, um, you're going to have to listen to me again. Oh God, damn it. (laughs) Um, I also listen to the podcast after it comes out because I usually do as well. Yeah. I listen to it once through when I'm editing and then usually again, like at work where I'm like, okay, let's see if, let's see if I did a bad job. You did a good, usually do. I mean, you always do a really great job. Um, thank you for us. Yeah. You are appreciated here. Thanks for uploading them and making all the things happen. I don't know how to do any of them. (laughs) No worries. Um, so they're going to, they're driving to the airstrip so that they can take his plane to London. Right. Yes. That's no. No. To a airfield oh, in Kent. Kent. Sorry. Um, they're just escaping France is the most important thing, and yes. it happens to be that he can just go to Kent because he has uh, an arrangement between this airstrip and the one in Kent, where he doesn't have to like take a passport or anything. Yeah. I guess. Does Lee Teabing's plane have a name? It does. What's that name, name is Elizabeth because it cost him a queen's ransom. What an idiot. Call it the Richard because that was the king of England who had to be ransomed when he was coming home from the fucking crusades. It bankrupted the country and resulted in the Barons War under John's kingship. I'm absolutely peeking the thing. I don't you- care. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, what, what are we? Oh, so they're just going to like roll up into this. Into this uh, airplane, because this is a pre-9-11 world. Um, and, well, it's not it was 2003, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty sure. I don't want to destroy my cred. Uh, yeah, you're right. My guess is he read that, uh, wrote that before uh, well, I mean, 9-11 he, he, and never went back. I mean, he explains that, A, I think strictures are a little looser in general at private airports mm-hmm. and then b also lee teabing flies up there quite frequently for medical treatments and he pays a lot of illicit bribes to people to like ease him through customs mm-hmm. so he can probably get this to happen through um just rich people magic otherwise known as money um mm-hmm. 
Silas is in the back, and they're at, like, who do you work for? Or, sorry, whom do you work for? I appreciated that. Yeah, me too. Although it did end in a preposition, so. I'm okay with that. That's I am too, but I feel like Teabing wouldn't be. That That is very true. Yeah. That's a good point. If you're going to start with whom, you're probably going to say. Yeah, no, no. Oxford man um, Lee Teabing would 100% be down with the Victorian grammarians and their idiotic insistence <laughs> that English imitate Latin rules. For whom do Latin. you work? Yeah. Um, and he's, he says, I do the work of God, you know, as you would. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he says, and so basically, why does Opus Dei want the keystone? He didn't say anything. So. Whatever. Yeah, my man, a soldier. That's right. Zip it up. <laughs> and Silas says, uh, a miracle, Lord. I need a miracle. And <laughs> Silas had no way of knowing that hours from now, he would get one. I hate this. It's dumb. That's how you do foreshadowing, folks. Uh, yeah, and we get a second dose of it because Robert has had some realization about something that's been concerning him all evening. And so he pulls out his phone and dials a number certain to get an answer about a question that's been puzzling him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then we have to wait a whole chapter to find out. It's on the next page. Um, <laughs> it's Robert Langdon's editor, Jonas Faukman, who, uh, as we recall from last time, was the guy who was, uh, you know, didn't want to publish a book that was too sensational because editors hate selling books. Also, um, he was very prescient about what would be the best selling book of all time. Oh, yeah, it was Harry Potter and the Sorcerer. Or, oh, shit. Oh. She, she just said Harry Potter. Yeah. We got a DM from a fan. <laughs> Chapter oh, yeah. 44 is dumb all around because it's a drawn-out description of things that don't really matter. And this, Heather, that's the entire book. <laughs> um. <laughs> She's getting a very late <laughs> reply to her DM. <laughs> Chapter 68, Falkman. Um, uh, yeah, so he's calling him in the middle of, uh, the night, or as he's going well, as, to bed. Yeah, he's yeah. just getting up, going to bed. Yeah. Um. Because of time differences. And basically, Langdon's like, hey, did you send my manuscript out to anyone for blurbs or something without telling me? And Falkman's like, yeah, I, I did that. Yeah, so I'm your editor. Jacques Saunier and some other people, and he's like, ah, yes, Jacques Saunier. Mm-hmm. And so that's why Jacques Saunier wanted to be with Robert Langdon. That's right. Um. I'm so glad we know that now. This this plot is airtight now. <laughs> um, Lee Teabing is like, Robert, you're saying you wrote a manuscript that delves into a secret society and your editor sent a copy to that secret society? And Langdon's like, evidently. And um, Dan Brown says, moreover, it was virtually guaranteed that any book on goddess worship would have to mention the Priory of Sion. And that, really, that was a thorn in my side, you know, because uh, there are goddesses that aren't involved with the priory of scion you could well i think you'll find the divine feminine is just all goddesses in dan brown's world i'm gonna complain this later too um but couldn't it just be about like a cult of isis and not involve the priory of scion i mean you'd think so but you'd be wrong (laughs) i guess i would you'd be greatly misunderstanding the way the academic book market works and the way just a thorough researcher goes about his job i'm really not you know i'm not as smart as harvard professor robert langdon it's true none of us are (laughs) Um, and it, this also maybe is a little, um, you know, log on the fire of why fascists after Langdon. Cause when he said, when Langdon said he'd never corresponded with Sonier, what if Bezu Fash found the manuscript of Robert Langdon's book or the envelope that said, Oh, this is Robert Langdon's book for you, Jacques Sonier. 
then he would think that Langdon was lying to him, even though he just wasn't aware that his editor was sending out review copies or blurb copies without his knowledge. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, that's that section. And then they arrive at the airfield, and then there's a beautiful plane. Beats the bloody channel, mate. That's my new teabing voice. (laughs) That's your teabing voice? Yeah, teabing's a Dickensian orphan. He likes to steal handkerchiefs. I hate this so much. I hate this so (laughs) much. Beats the bloody channel, mate. (laughs) When I was in England, I did that accent... (laughs) All of the time in London, I would just walk around like this fucking, this fucking place. You know, you think you think it's all like this. You got to do it up in the fat of your mouth, and it's this kind of Cockney orphan voice. I'm the artful dodger, mate. But like, I'm a modern artful dodger, so like, I play FIFA. Um, yeah, it's a nice private play. <laughs> I hate it so much. It's a private plane and Teabing holds the airport attendant at gunpoint, sort of implied to make him let them take off without filing a flight plan and to let all these people on without passports and shit. Yeah, they're doing they're doing uh, crimes. Man, what kind of plane is it? <laughs> it's a Hawker 731. Has it got engines? Uh, it does. It's got twin Garrett TFE 731 Damn. engines. And they're thundering, baby. Hell yeah. Um, Sophie's freaking out because she's fleeing the country with a hostage. Um... And that makes sense. I would freak out too, I think. Um, I don't know. I just, uh, I just, uh, I liked it. There, I, I, I don't know. I, I won't say I love this chapter, but I, I do like treasure hunts. So my love of treasure hunts kind That's of superseded fair. everything yeah. else. I had a treasure hunt for my 14th birthday and it was incredible. No, my 15th. No, my 15th <laughs> birthday. <laughs> it was extraordinary. Did you find the treasure? They did. Yes. Oh, you organized the treasure hunt. Yes. Okay. And then I had, uh, so I had my new friends from from my high school yeah. and my old friends from my middle school pair up that's in always, pairs. That's always stressful. It was stressful. And so they had to like learn to work together. I yeah. tried to pair them up really well and it was, people had a good time. That's good. Yeah. I wasn't invited, guys. Uh, I had a big fat crush <laughs> on you and I wasn't able to be your friend because you were old as fuck. Um, uh, my friends, I realize I am a guest in this journey. I'm on, God, teabing is insufferable. I hate this guy. <laughs> I, I, I won't, for, for your sake, I won't do the voice anymore. <laughs> but, um, he sounds like a father about to give the birds and bees lecture. Cause even when he's not talking about sex, he sounds like he's talking about sex. Yeah. Um, and like, he's sort of trying to pressure Sophie into saying like, I'm not really going to help you unless you promise that should you find it, you release these papers to the world. And Sophie's like, it seems like my choice and not yours. It's, it's like my grandpa's tube. Um, (laughs) cool. (laughs) Cool choice of words. (laughs) What were you calling a cryptex? I don't know. Puzzle box. (laughs) It's not a box. It's a tube. Um, <laughs> um, I can't. Even, I, I just realized I read the fucking line wrong last chapter because it beats the bloody channel, not channel. Yeah, uh, I was so caught on the other God. thing though. I, I I just wanted to let it go because I didn't want you to say the phrase again in the accent. Um, sorry. This is okay. Chapter sixty nine. Nice. Nice. Um. So so, so T Bing's like. So are you prepared to? Uh, are you going to re- reveal the information when you find it? Or are you, uh, you know, it's up to you. It's your responsibility. And she's like, guys, guys, okay, look. You don't find the grail, the grail finds you. And when I find it, although it will find me. Yeah, I'll know what to do. I'll know what to do. That's what happens here, basically. Yeah, it just takes, like, a long time to do it. Um, 
Okay, let's do 70, so... This chapter's so short. I, I know. appreciate that. So the, the prince in the car... So this is Cole, and they're, they're doing uh, 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 law enforcement stuff mm-hmm. around the chateau, because they've yeah, got to collect bullet evidence. casings and things, or bullet holes, at least. Yeah, and uh, Cole is not allowed to go after them, because his job is to stay there and do the PTS work. Yes. Um, and so... Um, so they found a bullet hole and it, you know, they're, they're doing, they're collecting evidence and they couldn't, the prints in the car didn't match anything in the Interpol database. And I had a question because mm-hmm. I thought about it for too long, <laughs> which is kind of the theme of this podcast is that we read these books and we think about them for far too long. Um, so, uh, Silas was in prison, right? For murder? Yes. And at the earliest he went to prison for murder in what, the 80s? At the earliest, he went to prison in the 80s. It's 2003, so 24 years ago. Let's say it's 2001, 24 years ago. Sure, 80s, let's call it. 80s or 70s, I don't know. Um, Am I to believe they didn't take fingerprints in France at that time? I honestly have no idea. I don't know when they figured out fingerprints um, and the whorls. Or maybe the police station was, um, you know, felled in the same earthquake as the prison and Mm. they lost all the files because they didn't have computers when they took Silas's fingerprints. And so no one has scanned them into the Interpol database. Or maybe, (laughs) or maybe part of his, you know, Opus Dei body mortification is also just like daily (laughs) pressing your pressing your fingers on some irons or whatever, so you don't have fingerprints. I mean, it's possible they had him do that before he did the crimes. You know. Yeah, your mission should you choose to accept it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember the rest of the, the Mission Impossible thing. I don't know. It's different every every movie. So I think there's like more of the stock phrase though. Oh, whatever. They get a phone call and it's bad news. It's from the airport. Or they call the airport because they found, like, the uh, list of contacts in Teabing's house. And there's one that's the nearby airport. And so they call it. I don't think we're there yet. What? First, Vernet calls. Vernet says he wants to talk to Cole privately. And then uh, Cole's like, wait a minute, aren't you that guy with the Rolex? And That happens later. Oh, so here, no? okay. <laughs> so yeah, so they get a call from Vernet. They do get the call from Vernet. Yeah, and Cole is just like, "Why did he call?" And why will he cooperate? Because Vernet's offering to cooperate, and he says they did indeed um, spend time in the bank tonight. Mm-hmm. And and this is an exchange for them keeping the name of the bank out of the news, exactly, basically. and helping him recover some stolen property. Is it stolen pop- property if? It's... No, but Vernet <laughs> thinks it is. Yeah, but even, okay, even just strictly based on what Vernet knows, Vernet knows that they have an account number and a key. That's all you need. That's, That's all not stolen property. Yeah, but I mean, he also, th- uh, yeah. I mean, Vernet's a little scatterbrained. Mm-hmm. He was holding, Or evil. In his, yeah, he could be the master, a teacher, Janice, teacher, <laughs> um, the professor. Uh, but yeah. As Kalei is first learning that Vernet wants him to call back, he also, um, another agent yelled to Fash, Captain, I'm going through Teabing's speed dial numbers. I'm on the phone with Le Bourget Airfield. I've got some bad news. Mm-hmm. And uh, then Fash is, who's there, but hasn't been doing much, I guess. 
he's off like a flash to the airfield, I think. Yes, that's correct. Chapter 70 is over, and now we can do some other things. (laughs) Now, cue the piano music, guys, because we're going to read you six entries from 187 Men to Avoid by Daniel Brown, the pseudonym, the nom de plume of the young Dan Brown as he, you know, hated everybody around him in an apartment building in... Los Angeles, and he saw the scum of the earth walking his apartment. He's like, these fucking people, I can't believe they're here and successful while I'm wasting away as an unappreciated songwriter and also mostly a teacher. The last uh, the last section of this is really bad, so let's hope for some mercy this time. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you, because number 49 <laughs> is men with issues. Issues in quotes. What does that mean? Well, you know, anybody who has, like, problems or a past or, or like, emotions, emotions or things to work through. Anything, like, people have must be avoided. They're, they're poisonous. They're toxic. They're going to ruin your life. You can only hang out with fake people who don't have any issues who are just, like, blank slates. Tabulae rase. I don't know how the verb agreement works there. I, uh, I want to just take this moment to say that if you are a man and you feel like you have to go it alone, you don't. I really recommend therapy. And what I definitely recommend is not roping in any woman with a semblance of emotional intelligence to become your unpaid therapist, because that's happened more times than I can count to myself and other girlfriends. So, yeah. you know, if you got some things to work through, don't wait till like right after sex and then start to unload. Like, <laughs> maybe just maybe go seek help. You're, you're, if you have health insurance, it likely covers it. Or go to the backyard, <laughs> stack up a bunch of rocks, don't get do a this. big ass sledgehammer, and just <laughs> go to town on those fucking rocks with a sledgehammer. Your, your feelings won't be better after nah, that. I promise. They'll be better for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Man, one time. <laughs> so, um, in, when I was. After my first year of college, when I moved back here and was going to community college, I decided, man, wouldn't my life be better if I had an organ? And on, on just forest things. And on Craigslist, there was a free organ. They said it was working. What? Yeah. And so I drove up. I had a pickup truck at the time. Where was it? Uh, somewhere in Escondido. All right, R.I.P. Zen truck. And so I drove up and picked up this organ from this guy and put it in the back of the truck, and, like, he helped me get it in. I don't know how that worked. But, like, it turned out it didn't work, so I took it down to the organ repair place by SDSU, and then they told me that it would cost a bunch of money to repair it, and I was like, well, I didn't get this free organ to spend money to repair this motherfucker. Uh, And so I drove it back here, and I tied it down in the truck, what I thought was secure. I got all the way home on the freeway, as I was turning up at the bottom of the street here, at the bottom of this hill, yeah. Boom, 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 boom. Oh no! It falls out of the truck, and like there's no damage to it, but oh, okay. there's an organ in the middle of the fucking street now. <laughs> and so uh, eventually, I think either Christopher or my dad or someone eventually like helped me get it back in the truck, and then it was like sitting out in the backyard here before the current layout was as it is. And uh, at some point, my parents like. We can't keep this organ in the backyard anymore. What are you doing? And uh, you can't just like throw away an organ. So I got to like take an axe and a sledgehammer and just like really annihilate. You destroyed the organ. I mean, it was like it was a, it was like a piece of shit. Like in yeah. the in the sixties and seventies, they had like family organs and they like sound like Casio keyboards and they're garbage. I see. Yeah, it was fun. Um, and side it note: with my emotional problems at the time. Oh, good. 
uh, side note, my, my close friend who lives in Bristol, she is a semi-pro organist, and she is maybe 5'1". That is extremely cool. And That's has, great. She has the tiniest feet and hands in the world. So she... I've seen her play organ. It's incredible. I've never seen someone's tiny hands stretch so far <laughs> to play such an That's elaborate marvelous. thing. She's incredible. Because she went to a boarding school in England. Because mm-hmm. um, her family was... Uh, it was like a very good boarding school, but for people who are at lower income. And so she was like, I'm going to do rich people stuff. I'm going to yeah. learn how to play the organ. And... Because uh, and her family's very religious, so she would play organ for mm-hmm. her church. It's the coolest thing to have as like a the hobby. Organ's way cool. Have you seen the cool. new organist down at Spreckles in Balboa Park? I have. Yes, I like him a lot. Uh, yeah, he's, he's also a little dude. Yeah, I don't know why that is. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, number fifty. <laughs> We're really making headway through this thing. <laughs> number fifty. Men who own the album Zamfir, Master of the Pan Flute. Another personal attack on Forrest. <laughs> Do you have this one? Uh, I mean, but you're it, about to. It is in this. It is in this house uh, somewhere, or at least it used to be. I just heard about this for the first time right now. It was a learned lead question at some point. Um, <laughs> um, well, sorry. What was the first word of that album? Zamfir. That's Can the I man playing it? the pan flute. Yeah, I believe he's Peruvian. Um, but it, it, as, as far as I know, it's this album that was like this big kind of new age hit in oh. the eighties or nineties. Like a bunch of people had it, but it was like. A bunch of weirdos who like lived on houseboats, like my dad. <laughs> my parents have a, a new agey '90s CD called "Cool Moods" that has a bunch of Enya songs and oh God. the uh, sail, away. Sail, away, sail, sail away, sail away, sail away, and um, like a Navajo happy song, I think, and then like uh, X Files theme. And also the theme from The Exorcist. What a strange compilation. <laughs> I'll loan it to you. It's something. Is it like officially licensed? Oh, and Celtic Woman, I think, is on it as well. What the fuck? Um, is it officially licensed? I mean, that one, yes. That one makes sense with the Enya, but I don't know what the X-Files theme. Cool moods. Cool runnings. <laughs> Stop. Oh, pure moods. I'm sorry. Oh, of course. Hold on. Let's look at it. What's the track listing on pure moods? <laughs> volume one. Yeah, we don't have volume two, unfortunately. The cover is um, something. Isn't it? Okay, it's got... Sorry, a lot of Enya. There's uh, Return to Innocence by Enigma. Do you know that song? No. That is a song. Um, and Adiemus... Adiemo? Hmm. I don't know. I recommend this album. Okay, it sounds pretty good. Pure Moods, everyone. It's on uh, audio CD for eleven forty nine on Amazon Prime. Okay. Or just put the songs together on Spotify. That's what I also did. Also that... Okay, sorry, let's move on. <laughs> Number 51, men who truly believe pro-wrestling, pro there's a hyphen there where there shouldn't be, men who truly believe pro-wrestling, pro-wrestling, should be an Olympic sport. I've, I don't think anyone thinks that. Nobody thinks that. Pro-wrestling, as far as I can tell, is fun and people like it. It's but theater. Like, yeah, and I think, I, I, I really don't think there's any people who like sincerely believe it's true. It's just fun to buy into the story. Yeah. Right? Number 52, men who have past lives avoid the Buddha at all costs. (laughs) Does that mean like, oh, that was another life, baby. Don't worry about my three kids. Or does that mean like... (laughs) I hadn't considered that. That would be a better uh, thing. Paul Ryan. Uh, Number 53, men who wish they'd been born a woman. (sighs) Ding, 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 ding. Dan Brown nails it again. I'm just gonna leave Holy it there. shit. What the fuck? Number 54. Let's just leave that one where it is because yeah. I don't 
want to deal with it. Me neither. Uh, number 54 is just normally elitist. Men who drink generic beer. Generic beer is fine. Uh, what is a generic beer? Like a Bud Light. If you don't go and drink a craft beer and you go have a Bud Light. Isn't or, that a name brand? What's a generic beer? Oh, I mean, maybe this this might be like the days before craft brewing. This might be like men who go to the store like and Safeway get like... Safeway br- yeah, brand Kirkland, beer? Yeah, Kirkland beer. Kirkland beer? Do they have that? I don't know. I feel like there are places where you can get something on the shelf that just is like a can that says beer on it. I feel like I've seen that before. Cool. Not like anywhere I've been because <laughs> uh, I, ever since I've been able to buy booze has been the age of craft beer and stuff. And, yeah. But I think I think at some point there might have been generic beer. And I think that would have been cool. One, two, three, four, five, six. That was the last one. Okay, great. Uh, can I get more Aperol spritz? Yes. You guys are bad at this. <laughs> you suck at prayer. <laughs> Good at prayer school. Okay, chapter 71. Yes. The plane is leveling off with its nose aimed for England. And mm-hmm. now we can get a look at this script in the box under the rose. You have to be literally stupid to not know that this is backwards. I mean, that and like to think it's a fucking Semitic script. Like well, That's something else. <laughs> like, A, uh, you can write different languages in any script, really. But like, presumably, Dan Brown is thinking that Robert Langdon thinks this looks like Arabic, and it doesn't. Because like, it doesn't look like Hebrew. And the only other script I know that Semitic languages are written in is Arabic. Arabic. And it it Arabic is so close to the ground. How is this? How the fuck would this ever be? You know, there's like like crazy swoops and like. I mean, there there can be swoops in Arabic, but like, like, no, it's not Arabic. you gotta look at it, guys. It doesn't look like Arabic. Yeah. It doesn't look like old Arabic. It doesn't look like any Arabic. Uh, I've looked at some old Arabic recently because I got this big, cool book of illuminated Bibles, and there's an Ethiopian Bible. Cool. Um, um, do you think John Langton did this calligraphy? I don't. You don't? I don't know why I think that. I mean, because he, he's an ambigramist, not a calligrapher, right? Yeah, but he, he must also have calligraphy training to do uh, ambigrams. That's true. I mean, he might have. John Langdon, let us know. John. (laughs) Hit us up, John. You're the one person whose work we've never trashed involved these books. I like most of your ambigrams. I like you a lot, John. I guess we trashed one of them a little bit, um, but mostly we thought they were really cool. I still am impressed with them, even though I don't think that it's impossible for anyone other than you to come up with the Illuminati ambigram. I found him online. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, go ahead. So yeah, Langdon's looking at this text and he's baffled by it. And he's like, I just can't place it. And then Sophie's like, my grandfather spoke a language so obscure that even a symbologist can't identify it, which is wrong in several ways. We don't know her grandfather spoke this language, A. Right. B of all, um, you can't tell what language something in is in if it's in a writing that you can't recognize. Like as I was saying, you can write generally any language in any script with or without some modifications to it. Like I can write modern English and Greek script. Mm-hmm. If you were willing to take some time, you could adapt cuneiform to modern English. It's just not a well-suited script to it because of the way that English morphology works. So like, you know, this script could be just English, spoiler alert, um, but written weird, or it could be Chinese written weird. Who knows? Um, and then that even a symbologist can't identify it. There's no reason that a symbologist would be particularly good at recognizing a particular language because they are by nature symbologists and not linguists. Um, yeah. Robert Langdon, or was it Teeving? Teeving uses a, 
a word I never heard before, the nekudot, um, which just means diacritical marks. Yeah. Um, is it any diacritical mark, or is it, is it specifically diacritical marks in Semitic scripts? Mm, I don't know. It says most modern Semitic alphabets have uh, no vowels and use nekudot, tiny dots and dashes written either below or within the column. I don't know. Um, I think I have run across that word before. I have. I, I've heard the word nikud, which is the ones that they have in uh, Hebrew, specifically. And then there's, uh, in Arabic, it's called yeah. Arab. Yeah, when you Google nekudot, uh, in Hebrew orthography, nikud or nikud, mm-hmm. um, double pointing, modern nekudot uh, is a system of diacritical signs used to represent vowels or distinguish between alternative pronunciations of letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So not even Semitic alphabets just specifically just hebrew. hebrew yeah i would just stick with diacritical marks there. i would too <laughs> um so yeah and so he's positing oh this doesn't have the diacritical markings which means it's probably ancient um yeah they're on they're, they talk a lot about stuff that doesn't matter um sephardic transliteration perhaps yeah i don't know um <laughs> and uh Tebing thinks it's a script that only he would recognize, like uh, a Rashi script. I think Rashi's a particular individual, right? I don't know. I'm pretty sure he's a specific rabbi. Uh, I think he came up on the footnotes of one of my Bible things a lot. Yeah. French rabbi, what's up? <laughs> when you Google it, at least when I Google it, it tries to tell me I'm Googling Rashida Jones, but I'm not. Yeah, same. <laughs> okay, that's good. Um, and that so I Sophie's revealed like... my cookies. <laughs> Sophia's like, hey, uh, can I see it? And they're like, no, you're a little girl and you don't know anything. And she's like, no, but like, can I see it? And uh, T-Bing's like, of course, dear. He hadn't meant to sound belittling, and yet Sophie Naveau was light years out of her league. If a British royal historian and a Harvard symbologist could not even identify the language. She's a cryptologist for the FBI! For the Uh... the JP, (laughs) the Judicial Police. Yeah. Um, She's a cryptologist. Yeah, there's a reason when you decipher a new writing script, you call it deciphering it. Because cryptology <laughs> Certainly more than fucking symbology cells. It wasn't the fucking symbologist who decoded hieroglyphs. It was Jean-Francois Champollion, an amateur linguist. Um, you fuckers. I don't think there were cryptologists at the time. Champollion's really cool. Um, anyways. <laughs> So anyway, she looks at it and she's immediately like, oh yeah, this is just backwards English. Yeah, right? it's the way Da Vinci wrote. Which, like, I fucking, like, everyone knows Da Vinci writes in mirror image script before this book came out. Like, yeah, that's yeah. common fucking ass knowledge. Yeah. Uh, I had a little book about lives of the artist when I was a child, when I was like six. Of course you And did. it mentioned it. It was a cool <laughs> book. There's like, there's a whole series. There's musicians and artists too. Cool. Um, and it's like the first thing, you know, oh, Da Vinci wrote in like the mirror script and everyone thought it was weird and shit. And Robert Langdon describes going to see this exhibition of some papers that Bill Gates bought for $30.8 billion million of, like, Da Vinci's diaries. And he, like, walks up and he's like, disappointed. He's like, oh, I can't read it. It must be because the Italian's archaic, but I don't even recognize any Italian words. And he's at a museum, and there's, like, a display, and attached yeah. to the display is a mirror, and he doesn't even think yeah. about it. Try this, sir, whispered the female docent at the display Just case. Just say D- <laughs> docent. Because say uh, docent, and then she motioned to a hand mirror. Yeah female docent and of then, course he calls them female yeah. and then and then langdon's like oh you can read it when it's in the mirror because da vinci wrote in mirror script how could i have forgotten because you're a fucking idiot you're so stupid um 
And then at the end here, oh, she says it's English and we need a mirror, basically. Yeah, well, they don't need a mirror because her grandfather could never figure out how to do mirror writing very well, so he would always, like, write it on something where he could just trace it backwards. So yeah. she figures the wood must be thin enough that if they shine a light through it, they'll be able to read it normal. And then uh, we get a little aside where Remy um, is trying to hear them beyond the rumbling engines, but couldn't. And then uh, he didn't like the way the night was progressing. And he looked down at uh, the, the bound monk at his feet. Yeah, I wouldn't like the way that. the night was progressing either if I were an if old w- man servant. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't really like Stephen King, uh, but I've read his book on writing. Have you read it? I've read, no. Okay. It's good. I like it. It's about the craft of writing. And yeah. he, I don't think I'm he's aware a, of it. Yeah. I don't think he's a particularly talented author, but <clears throat> I, I know. But I think that um, he knows a lot about the craft of writing. Yeah. And uh, the book on writing is good. And there's a bit of it where he talks about how nothing should be superfluous in a book, oh. right? Everything, <laughs> everything should have its place. And I was reading this Remy bit and I just thought, then why like, is it so fucking long? <laughs> why are there 18 dark tower books? Really this Stephen King. <laughs> um, side note, unrelated. Um, have you seen, are you familiar with the epic rap battles of history? Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I haven't watched it in a long time. Have you seen the one, uh, of the Renaissance painters versus the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles of the same name? No. <laughs> Would you like to? Uh, kind of. <laughs> Maybe later. Yeah. Um, so they, 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 they read this poem in chapter 72 and it says, an ancient word of wisdom frees this scroll and helps us keep her scattered family whole. A headstone praised by Templars is the key, and Atbash will reveal the truth to thee. It looks a little bit like at trash. I thought it was at last when I was reading it at first, and I was very mad that it didn't say, and will at last reveal the truth to thee, which would be better iambic pentameter which they make a big deal of them all recognizing this poems in iambic pentameter. And then we go over the exact same shit we did during the, during angels and demons when the the thing was in in English and in iambic pentameter. And he was like, Oh my God, but this time we get like an extra gender dimension where the I am as a poetic unit as being stressed and unstressed mirrors, the duality of man and woman and sexuality and light and dark and pentameter. There's five things because everything has to be the pentacle and bullshit. But also the Illuminati believes in pairs. Remember that? The Illuminati did believe in pairs. (laughs) Um, um, Man, it's almost like these symbols can be used for multiple things. You can't read every meaning into every symbol. Truly, no new research was harmed in the making of this novel. <laughs> like that's the new podcast catchphrase. <laughs> my, honestly, my guess is like they did the, the catchphrase. <laughs> they did one research for angels and demons, and they made two books out of it. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> um. So yeah, then. They get caught up on Atbash, and Sophie recognizes the word Atbash, and Langdon's condescending to her. Why would Why would Langdon know? Because he's a symbologist, and symbologists know everything about everything that I has to do with symbols. So. And letters are symbols, don't you know? So yeah, Atbash is a, is a um, uh, cipher you use when you're doing like Bible code shit. Yeah, you know when you have like a decoder ring, and like Z is A and Y is B. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, so it's basically a, it's, it's a substitution cipher that you can use with the Hebrew alphabet in order to read new meanings into things in the Old Testament. 
believe me when I tell you that various rabbis have been doing this for a long ass time and uh, it's a whole thing and it's part of the magic of the Old Testament is that uh, you can read all these codes into it. There was a really strange document on the History Channel a while ago called the Bible Code and uh, their counter evidence was using a, the Bible is a little different than the Atbash cipher. That one's actually just to decipher weird words you don't recognize. Mm-hmm. Um, which seems maybe legit. I didn't do a lot of research about it recently, but basically rabbis have been like really tearing apart that Old Testament for a long ass time trying to find hitting meanings. It's a long ass testament. <laughs> I feel like T-Bing is only here so that Dan Brown can unload all of the five letter words he's learned over his uh, over the course of his time as an English teacher. Like, my friends, I'm... S- oh, stymied? Yes. Yep. Let me ponder this while I get <laughs> I get us some nibblies and check on a Remy and our guest. And no, nibblies is not a five letter word. But like, what? What's wrong? Are you okay? I'm trying to find where you are. I'm on three hundred four in the middle of the page. Oh, there it is. Mm-hmm. I thought it was, I was looking for the beginning of a paragraph with my friends, but it's in the middle of a paragraph. It's in the middle. Yeah. Foiled again by <laughs> Lena's trickery. <laughs> um. So they've got to figure out what the word is, the five-letter word yes. is, so they can put it in the cylinder. Yeah, and, um, you know, T-Bing is going off on his own again to talk to Remy and in the back of the plane in a different mm-hmm. room, but don't think about it. Don't think about it. Uh, 73. Or did you, was there something else? No, I, okay. I, I was worried there might be, but there's not. So chapter 73, we're back at Bourget Airfield. And Fash is being an asshole. He's not. He doesn't seem like a good detective. He's, he's just threatening people and trying to get shot. information. I, I think now he's like he's beyond the point of being a good detective. I think he knows he's fucked up now. He's but frazzled. He's, yeah. But he, like, he's work. He's also working on not only his judicial instincts, but also on whatever Aringarosa was telling him about. So he's probably conflicted religiously about something going on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's all a lot of things are happening inside the bullish mind of Bezu Fash. Um, so he's like threatening the controller of the airstrip there, and uh, he's like, "Where where's it going?" The guy's like, "I don't know," but he usually goes to this place in Kent, right? Mm-hmm. That's basically it here. Yeah, and so Fash wants him to get the local Kent police. He doesn't want to involve any of like the overarching bigger british police units because he wants to keep this thing small british mi5 yeah yeah um and uh nobody deplanes again until i get there and i just want to talk about deplane (laughs) deplane it's a fantasy island reference for all of you fantasy island fans out there (laughs) can i get a shout out for shit what's his name herve villanueva Anyway, the word deplane is funny <laughs> because because you don't like decar or deboat, you know? It's only plane. Yeah, I, I always use disembark for plane because it feels better. Yeah, I agree. Revive Vilishayiz. I didn't have to look it up, guys. I had IMD open, but I didn't find his name. <laughs> 74. Uh, like, I'm not even that drunk. This is a nightmare. <laughs> It's a Saturday. We're loose. 74. You know? Langdon's talking to Sophie. He's like, you're quiet. Like I said, just grazing across the cabinet, Sophie. Gross. She's um, tired. She they, they, they need to sleep. They've been up for a very long time. They've been up since last 
night? Or no, is this still the same night? I mean, Langdon has not been up that long, but like he didn't sleep for that long before he got up. Yeah. Because like, he was asleep from about 9 to 11, never forget, and then woke up and was called to the Louvre, and now it's like probably 4. Sophie three. needs to sleep. Sophie needs to sleep. Um, and so he walks up to her and is like, hey, uh, so uh, tell me about the hot, steamy sex you saw your grandpa having. <laughs> <laughs> And she's like, excuse me. It's not quite that unprompted. Um, So Langdon's like, uh, man, Langdon's like, you witnessed the sex, right? This paragraph, I I hadn't noticed it when I was reading because I forgot what I was leading up to. The hum of the engines and the gentle rocking of the plane were hypnotic and his head still throbbed where he'd been hit by the monk. T-Bing was still in the back of the plane and Langdon decided to take advantage of the moment alone with Sophie. And like all of that are words that like independently you might not think are leading up to sex talk. But like when you look back at them, as I have just done, you're like, oh, "Oh." (laughs) Um, (laughs) it might be good writing. I'm not sure. (laughs) Yeah, it may be. It's it's setting a very throbbing scene. Yeah. So Langdon's like, listen, so. Um. You mentioned that you're, you saw your grandpa getting some, like, something, and that's what drove you apart. So, like, what was it? And then she doesn't want to talk about it. I haven't told you what drove us apart. And he's like, you witnessed a sex right, didn't you? And she's like, oh, how could you know? And he's um, like, you want to tell me about it? Tell me about the sex right. <laughs> sex right, baby. <laughs> uh, it wasn't even a pun on Love Shack. God no. damn it. <laughs> Fuck! You have to cut it. <laughs> I'll never I... cut it. <laughs> uh, so she describes it. There were masks and orbs and gold shoes and shit, and her grandpa was there. Yeah, we're, and, the, the, uh, there's gossamer white robes, lest we forget. Gossamer is... Oh, sorry. Um, it was around the equinox in mid-March. Sophie was on spring break. Spring break? She should be into it on spring break, right? I've seen films. I mean, her grandpa's there. <laughs> well, <laughs> listen. So he explains what Iris Hyrus Gamos is. So yeah. it's the 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 union ceremony between uh priests and priestesses and it's about the the joining of the the male and the the sacred feminine. Uh there's some stuff here where he talks about like orgasm is a prayer or something. I, actually, clarity. I actually wanted to talk about his explanation of hieroskamos. I'm gonna let you go. Then. I looked. Up, I looked at the Greek pronunciation today because I was reading. I was like, "There's no way it's hieroskamos. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense because uh, everything in Greek is accented on a weird syllable." And gamos is right, but say it's it again. Hieroskamos. Hieroskamos. There you go. Um, I'm not gonna say it like that. I'm gonna say hieroskamos from now on. Um, so well, I'm going to say Kalike for the yeah. thing. So you know how this whole time we've been talking about how all of these men throughout world history, notably all of the men who made art throughout world history, were trying to tell us about how the sacred feminine is a good thing and we should be into it. Mm-hmm. And uh, weird to note that they are still all men. Uh, <laughs> but then Robert Langdon explaining the Hyros Gamos ritual, the entire way he describes it is not the kind of new agey way of looking at it, I think where it is about a mutual kind of equal relationship. Right. Uh-huh. Um, it is, I think something that might be more accurate to ancient Greece, but probably not to the traditions from which it derives ultimately, 
where the act of Hieros Gamos is all about completing the male and like anything about the actual divine feminine is just something that is there for the purpose of completing the masculine uh, purpose. Yeah. Because so he describes it here. Uh, the ancients believed the male was spiritually incomplete until he had carnal knowledge of the sacral feminine. Uh, physical union remained the sole means through which man could become spiritually complete, complete and ultimately achieve gnosis, knowledge of the divine. Since the days of Isis, sex rites had been considered man's only bridge from earth to heaven. By communing with women, man could achieve a climactic instant when his mind went totally blank and he could see God. And, like, it just continues throughout this whole thing. Uh, later on, I have highlighted, intercourse was the revered union of the two halves of the human spirit, male and female, through which the male could find spiritual wholeness. Um, and so, like, this entire thing is all described from just the point of view and as... It's the same we talked about Mary Magdalene last time, where she's yeah. an object. Like, this entire ritual here is just for the spiritual completion of the male, and there's, like, the female element is there to be respected but ultimately used as a road to completeness for the man right it's not by any measure like a feminist movement it's just like yeah um like a like a thinly veiled extraordinarily sexist use of the divine feminine yeah and so then at the end of the thing here um langdon says that the reasons was so threatened to the early church they had to get rid of it is because um you know Mankind's use of sex to commune directly with God posed a serious threat to the Catholic power base. It left the church out of the loop. So they had to demonize sex and women as kind of shameful. And then other religions followed suit, mm -hmm. which is so fucking wild because <laughs> like, does he think that like ancient Rome and pre-Christian Rome and Greece and everywhere else were like great places to be a woman where like women were respected and honored and revered? They were right. fucking nightmares. They were nightmares. Greek, like the way Greek society treated women is like. It's horrifying. It's very upsetting to learn about. <laughs> yes. And it's like why I cling so dearly to Sappho is like somehow she managed to like do all this good shit and find joy in her life in yeah. a society that like. <laughs> She's, like, literally not supposed to leave a fucking room in the house all day. Yeah. It's nightmarish. It is. So the idea that Christianity is, like, the driving force behind this is... Bananas. <laughs> it's, it's so fucked up. And, like, there's so many good reasons to get mad at things Christianity's done. Blaming it for, like, woman's... Lot in life. Lot in life throughout history is mm -hmm. uh, a crime that it is complicit in but not responsible for. Right. Uh, did you do any any research into sh Shekinah? Shekinah? No. Okay. Uh, <laughs> did you do any research in uh, Jah and Hava? I was looking at that. So he posits here that the Tetragrammaton, you know, the YHWH Yahweh, mm -hmm. is derived from Jehovah, which, sure. <laughs> but an androgynous physical, I think it might be the other way around. Um, an androgynous physical union between the masculine jaw and the pre-Hebraic name for Eve, Hava, which seems dicey to me because throughout most of the Old Testament, like all the evidence is that Yehovah or Yahweh or Elohim or the other name he has there, but I forget. Um, you say Yahweh? I did. Okay. It's J source and that's, I don't know, it might be Yahweh, but... Like, that he is very specifically uh, 
very similar to the other gods in that region. So like very similar to Baal functioning where he's your main tribal god mm -hmm. and he was pretty clearly a war god. The common theory, I think, is that the song, there's a song that gets sung after the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus. Mm -hmm. And I think there's textual evidence that that's like the oldest intact bit of the Bible. And it's pretty clearly a polytheist text where like our God's going to kick your God's ass because he's a bigger, more badass God, <laughs> not because he's like the sole God and certainly not because he's a androgynous physical union between the masculine jaw and the pre-Hebraic name for Eve, Chava. <laughs> Um, do you play video games at all? I do. Have you played uh, The Talos Principle? No. Okay. I really recommend it. Um, What's it about? So you're a robot basically doing... There's There's been a series of AI tests, and you are like the last AI test basically okay. to, to reach like full consciousness. And the thing that's guiding you through all the... Um, all the tests of if you're like a good a good AI a good mind is someone is a, a disembodied voice named Elohim and it opens with that's the name I, I was looking for I am Elohim <laughs> and it's so dope that's good and um uh you should play it I think you'd really like it yeah. because it's a puzzle game and it's fun and it's not like very like I mean for me I don't like dexterity based games so it's not very dexterity based yeah. um and. Uh, I like puzzles, and it's beautiful to look at, and uh, there's a lot of cool biblical stuff in it. I love biblical stuff. Yeah. This week I've just been playing FIFA because of the <laughs> Rock I recommend the Talos Principle. It's I'm very, really very bad good. at FIFA, so... <laughs> uh, good news is the Talos Principle is nothing like FIFA. Yeah. Um, so we get a flashback again to Robert Langdon's class, which is always fucking horrifying. Oh, God. Oh, well, first we... Don't we first... Oh, no, no, you're right. We do get no, that first. No, it's... Yeah. It, uh, I have some stuff highlighted because it's awful. So Langdon's, like, explaining to his students that, like, oh, this ancient view of sex is very different from a modern view of sex. Um, and he mentions... He kind of compares Hyros Gamos with the right and eyes wide shut, which is what it is. And then all these horny college students are like, so sex is prayer? So like, you saying we should, instead of going to church, we should just be banging more? And I don't like this voice either. There's something about when you, <laughs> there's something about when you put your all your sound in the front of your mouth it's that really I bad. do not like. <laughs> um, and so Langdon, Langdon A is like, from what I've heard about Harvard parties, these kids are begging plenty. And it's like, <laughs> I refuse to believe Harvard parties are that sexy. I refuse to believe Me it. Me too. Because um, Ted Cruz was there. I was like, everyone I've known who fucking went to Harvard, I refuse to believe has ever had sex. <laughs> um, Jared Kushner. Yeah. Right? Matthew Iglesias, I think. My very close friend Jennifer went to Harvard, um, but she's also like the son of a, pa the daughter of a pastor and like, is saving it for marriage, so she hasn't had sex either. Yeah. Like, exactly. No one at Harvard's ever had sex. Yeah. You heard it here first. <laughs> um, and so Robert Lane's like, without, without being so bold as to condone premarital sex, and without being so naive as to think you're all chaste angels, I'll give you this bit of advice about your sex lives. I 100% skipped this. And all the men lean forward greedily, like, like, like slavering wolves in a Disney cartoon. And Langdon's like, the next time you find yourself with a woman, look in your heart and see if you cannot approach sex as a mystical, spiritual act. Challenge yourself to find that spark of divinity that man can only achieve through union with the sacred feminine. <laughs> so like, and A, A, how good does Robert Langdon think he is at sex? <laughs> like, think about it for a minute. Pause. 
pause this podcast, think about it, run through the implication in your head. Oh man, Robert Langdon thinks he is like Sting or some shit. Okay, we're going to give you a pause. Ready? Now that you're all turned on. (laughs) um, So after Robert Langdon says this, the women smiled knowingly, nodding, which, come on. He just implied that the only purpose (laughs) of sex is to create... Emotional uh, light, spiritual enlightenment yeah. in the man. Like, why and would the, they smile then knowingly? The, the men are all giggling and telling jokes, and then Langdon says, college men were still boys. I've never heard college that's why men. The, that's why the co-eds like Robert Langdon. <laughs> I've never heard uh, college men said as, like, a phrase. Really? It's always college boys. College, no? College men? College, men? College, They're co- 19! <laughs> yeah, I know, but, like, it's, 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 it's a whole, there's a whole idea of college men. It's like, a, it's like, I think it's a very Northeastern sort of thing. You see it in movies and stuff, but college okay. men. Well, I went um, to school on the West Coast, and I've also yeah. never dated a college man, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guarantee you, having read this, that Robert Langdon used that line to fuck grad students. Gross. Gross. And yet, I stand by it. <laughs> We're still in this fucking chapter. Holy shit. Sophie's <laughs> forehead felt cold. <laughs> Sophie is now having a flashback to when she saw her grandpa fucking. And <laughs> um, it's upsetting to her. And they're all chanting. And uh, Dan Brown takes this opportunity while trying to uphold the sacred feminine to dunk on fat women again. I have a highlighter. <laughs> to say straddling her grandfather gross was a naked woman wearing a white mask her luxuriant silver hair flowing out behind it her body was plump far from perfect you know how plump bodies are ugly i do (laughs) and she was gyrating in rhythm to the chanting making love to sophie's grandfather i want to take a moment to note that on this podcast both forrest and i are not thin people no (laughs) like but we have perfect bodies i used to be I never was, um, but we have perfect bodies, y'all. We're literally uh, perfect <laughs> specimens. You can speak for yourself. <laughs> Thank you. Anyway, uh, so that's gross, and I don't like it. Yeah, and it sucks. Now we're gonna check in back in with Ringarosa after Sophie's feeling bad about cutting her grandpa off because she didn't understand his fuck right. Like, even even if it wasn't a, 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 a creepy, like, eyes wide shut fuck right, you know? Like, let your grandpa have a sex life. He's an adult, and he's done so much for you. And, like, how dare you cut them off? Cut him off. Well, you know, even if he's not doing a fuck right, let him fuck right. <laughs> Leave it in. <laughs> um, um, the charter turboprop with Bishop Aringarosa, he's over Monaco. Um, he's gonna have gamble, and um, um, anyways, Oringros flying over Monaco um, after Lena didn't date him, <laughs> and um, he's kind of he's 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 stressed, and he realizes he needs to get his plane to change directions and go to London instead of its current destination, and so he's trying to bribe the pilot to make that happen. You're good, and. Um, <laughs> And the pilot's like, you got cash, bro? And he's like, no, I got these Vatican bonds. And he's like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> he's like, they're good, as good as cash. It's only cash is cash. And then he eyes the bishop's diamonds and his, you know, miter, crozier ring or whatever. <laughs> and he's like, those are real diamonds. And the bishop's like, not my precious diamond ring. Um, but but he like, says it's, it's going to be worthless to him in a yeah, second Yeah, he's, anyway. like, he's like, but I already, like, really, you know, 
kind of bungled being a good bishop. Um, so I guess you could have my diamond ring as long as you'll drive the plane to London. Uh, my, my whole scheme is collapsing in on itself. And, and the end terrible, is nowhere in sight. Terrible. Although, okay, I have a it question. It is, because we're at page 314 out of 450. 450? Yeah. The next Holy podcast we record is going to be the last one of the book, and then we're yeah. going to watch the film. Yeah. I thought it was shorter than that. Why is this book 450 pages long? <laughs> I don't long? know. Um, if something's collapsing in on itself, can't you see the end? Like, what do you mean by the end is nowhere in sight? Well, it depends on where you are, if you're inside of it, not necessarily. I guess. This chapter is fine. I don't I don't love it. There's nothing, like, it. offensive about it. It's just stupid. Okay, 76. Um... Teabing returns with some crackers and some cokes. Yeah, mm-hmm. the very English Lee Teabing, who like is so English, he refuses to like put his intercom on the correct side of the road in fucking France. Comes in with a tray full of cokes. I do not think so. <laughs> he comes in with a tray full of tea and cognac. That's right. Um, and he also um, calls Sophie my lovely. I don't like it at all. So my lovely, in your head way. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um. <laughs> last night I was just thinking about when when I'm in law school, and I'm gonna have to set aside time while from doing my law school reading to read Dan Brown books. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Last night I was thinking about how like I bet the Artful Dodger was hot when he grew up. Think about it. I was in a production of Oliver, and um, so was my friend. Who I'm drinking with tomorrow. Good. Wait, wait, what's your friend's name? His name is Stephen Jones. No, I don't know this one. It sounds like I'm making up a fake name to disguise his identity. This is a real name. <laughs> um, he was like big in San Diego youth theater for a while. The guy who played Artful, Artful Dodger did grow up to be hot. I think everyone who's ever played Artful Dodger has grown up to be hot. That tracks. Yeah. Because uh, you got to be a little smirky as a kid to be to be uh, cast as the Artful Dodger. To be cast as the Artful Dodger. Consider yourself. <laughs> Home. <laughs> um, uh, anyways, so they, they 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 they're trying to find the thing that mentions in the poem, and then they get on a whole thing about Baphomet, and Baphomet is the like goat-headed god of fertility and, and shit, fecundity. and apparently the Templars worshipped it, and that's why the church decided to say they were worshiping the devil, and that's when the church decided to make it so that way the devil had like goat's horns and goat's heads and shit. I've seen a few like internet conspiracy theories that say that the head of Baphomet resembles a uterus, which it kind of does. Yeah, just like the Texas Longhorns logo. Right, or like the Dodge logo, because they're all horned Mm -hmm. creatures. Um, And it also fits like very safely within a pentagram. So, whatever. Then he decides to say that Thanksgiving tables still bore pagan horn fertility symbols. I remember this from when I was a kid and I read this. Because he says the cornucopia, or horn of plenty, was attributed to Baphomet's fertility, but then says it dates back to Zeus being suckled by a goat whose horn broke off and magically filled with fruit. So is it a tribute to fucking Zeus and this goat or to fucking Baphomet? Because they're from different spiritual traditions. See, this was my thing about the Sangreal. Does it mean holy blood or does it mean the other thing? Yeah. And then he says, then he says, Lena, what do you call it when you're taking a picture with somebody and they put their fingers up behind your head in the shape of a V? It's a bunny ears. Prank. It's bunny ears! <laughs> Baphomet also appeared in a group photographs when some joker raised two fingers behind a friend's head in the V symbol of horns. 
Certainly a few of the pranksters, certainly few of the pranksters realized their mocking gesture was in fact advertising their victim's robust sperm count. Okay, first of all, years, bitch. First of all, ew. Okay. (laughs) Second of all, that can't possibly be true or relevant. So I did some research. And finally, third, um, the bunny ears is actually a reference to the fool's cap. But now it is Dan Brown who is the fool. Also sounds wrong. I mean, that's what I found. Also sounds made up. (laughs) I don't know. Um, anyways, so then we decide that we can't use Baphomet's name because eight letters. And so T-Bing is like, <laughs> he grinned broadly. And my dear, this is where the Atbash cipher comes into play. I didn't do the voice this time. Thanks. I appreciate it. Um, and so T-Bing writes out the Hebrew alphabet and it impresses Langdon because Langdon's a fucking idiot. Um, he doesn't even write it in Hebrew. He writes it. Uh, yeah. The he writes it in Latin script. To be fair, the, the, the target word is going to be in Latin script. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, like, imagine being impressed by someone writing the alphabet, <laughs> no matter what language it is. Um, and so then he translates Baphomet into Hebrew as taking out the vowels, because Hebrew written in ancient manner doesn't have vowels. Yeah, it has uh, diacritics instead. Yeah. I mean, if you write super ancient, there's not even diacritics. Oh, wow. That uh, sucks. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Um, and then he, he comes out with B, P, V, M, and T. Uh, it's a TH for mm-hmm. those of you who aren't linguists like me. <laughs> uh, and then he says, normally he was written the opposite direction, but with the at bash, we can use it either way because a substitution cipher doesn't care what order the letters are in. Obviously it's a, just one letter equals different letter. Um, and then he's about to start writing the alphabet in reverse order so he can look at the symbols. And Sophie says there's an easier way. You can just write half of it and then write the second half underneath going backwards. But like what Sophie has not accounted for is he already wrote the alphabet once going forward. So it's the exact same <laughs> amount of work to write it once going both ways as it is to write it a second time going the other way. Um, I'm just saying, Sophie's crypto, 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 logical cryptanalysis training... Um, is certainly useful in other circumstances, but it's not all it's cracked up to be here. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, they, they plug in Baphomet and it comes out to Sophie. I mean, what way to say? <laughs> well, it comes out to... Um, Shafia. Yeah, it comes out to Shafia. Uh, and that ah, uh, as you might remember, even though he doesn't have vowel sounds, it does have a glottal stop sound. That is the Aleph. Yeah. Um, and so it that's, exists that's, in Arabic that's, as well. That's why there can be an A. Um, don't write to us about this. <laughs> write to us about how much you love the podcast. And the V here is a, a placeholder for like the, the wa sound. Yes. Which is also exactly how Arabic works. Very cool. Yeah. I um, mean, also Greek doesn't have a letter for the wa sound. They used to have a diagram that was a wa, but mm-hmm. then they took it out. Um, so it's Sophia. Um, and so he encrypted this way before she was born, right? Or... How, not necessarily no? they said a couple of decades how old is she 30 in her she's 30s? like 30 so like it could be before she was born but like or maybe when she was like 10 or something. yeah but okay. either way like it's very what they're into and like sophia is um in gnostic christianity an important figure yeah uh she's the aspect of the oneness or of um the wholeness that subcreates all that we have uh, the, the 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 material world we live in and also in doing so creates yaldaba oath the evil spirit who is the god of the old testament uh <laughs> gnostic <laughs> gnostic uh cosmogony is wild and really I had, cool i tried to get into it yesterday and i gave up um but there's one more thing that i wanted to say go for it uh 
Teabing says in ancient Greek, wisdom is spelled S-O-F-I-A, which is not. It's spelled Sigma, Omicron, Phi, or Phi, Iota, Alpha. That's right. There's um, no F in ancient Greek, is what I'm telling you. It's fucking Phi. Um, uh, it's cute. Um, we all know that Sophia is an ancient word of wisdom, right? Philosophy, yeah. right? I mean, so I, I, you'd be an idiot to not try that first. Yeah, I, I think TVing spelling is just the one from Haja Sophia, I think. It's the one that has five letters in it. Yeah, but it's the one from Haja Sophia. That's that, right? I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. The, ha- the ha- ha- Hagia Sophia, Haja Sophia, the, the big the big thing that used to be a mosque and is now... A, oh! And then was a church. I don't know. Or was a church, now is a mosque. My, f- my computer's going to die soon, so oh. we have to finish this <laughs> okay. podcast. Chapter 78, chapter 78. <laughs> Sophie enters the letters into the cryptex and pulls it apart, and uh-oh, there's not a scroll inside. There's another fucking cryptex, but a smaller one. They're really just feeding us a symbolism so much, and and... Like, it would be nice to discovering something in this fucking book for once. To just to be like, uh, wait, I'm sorry, where is it? Like, oh, here it is. It's like, double entendres, male, female, black nested within white. White gives birth to black. And I'm like, could I just... This is on black marble. (laughs) (laughs) Right. The outside is white marble. The inside is black marble. And I would just for once like to feel smart in this fucking book and figure something out on my own. Well, I mean, then how would you know that Dan Brown's smart? Think about it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I would respect him more. Yeah, because he would hide jokes anyway. And this cryptic is wrapped in a peach piece in a peach of vellum, um, on which is written, "In London lies a knight, a pope interred," and then some more lines of poetry that aren't. Wait, those... I want to make a joke first. Hold yeah, on, go for it. Yo, dog, I heard you like cryptexes, <laughs> so I, I hit a cryptex in your cryptex. Yeah, Jacques Saunier is the spiritual godfather of Exhibit. Um, <laughs> My dad met Exhibit on a plane once. Did he guys autograph? Yes, and they, there's a picture of them together. That's wonderful. Um, and the fact that this poem refers to London means they want to reroute to London, not land in Kent. Yeah, there's you, something very upsetting about this poem. And it says, so in London lies a knight, a pope interred, okay? Mm-hmm. Right? The remainder of the poem clearly implied that the password for opening the second cryptex could be found by visiting this knight's tomb somewhere in the city. Could he just write the fucking poem? Iambic pentameter is very hard. He's an English teacher! It, also, iambic pentameter is incredibly easy to write in, guys. Yes. Um, um, I don't like it at all. I don't it's like... It's so dumb. Read, he, he wrote so much other shit. Yeah. And so, chapter 79, Colet is just drinking Perrier from Teabing's refrigerator <laughs> and stressing out about his whole investigation here. Wouldn't and, he r- uh, drink, like, Seagram's uh, seltzer instead of Perrier? He's an Englishman. I mean, I think that part of being an Englishman often is taking the finer things from French culture that are lacking in British culture and then eating them or drinking them. Like, there's a reason that British people <laughs> drink French wine okay um and so the the csi guys have found um pts yeah the ptsd guys have found a uh one piece of paper where teabing is just writing on a scrap of paper like i think that cathedrals represent a woman's reproductive system the nave is the um the birth canal is the birth canal which means the door is a dot 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 something too indelicate for dan brown to write in his novel (laughs) and uh, radial receding (laughs) labial ridges and a nice sank clitoris above the doorway kind of makes you want to go back to church he says 
because the French are horny. We love to walk um, into vaginas. Yeah. Of, <laughs> <laughs> um, and also he found that this guy has copies of the list of priory grandmasters from Les Dossiers Secrets all around his fucking apartment. So we just, or uh, estate, I guess. So he decided to put one into an evidence bag so they could go over it. Um, Nicholas Flamel is one of them. Nicholas Flamel. I think this book might have been the first time I originally realized that that wasn't a person made up for Harry Potter. Yeah, same. Oh, so then Colet finally is getting on the line with Vernay. And uh, as soon as he says his name, Vernay gets off the line real quick. And Colet's like, I don't know why he got off the line so quick. He wants to agree with us. And then he realized, oh my God, that's the same voice as the guy who was driving the truck. Mm-hmm. Something the weird here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Chapter 80, chapter 80. <laughs> We're almost done. We're it's so almost close. over. I don't have many notes here. No, all that happens is uh, they see the police are coming to the airfield. They're about to land. And so they come up with some kind of clever scheme to evade them without having to be arrested. Um mm-hmm. And we're not led into what that is. It's just something clever that we're going to find out in chapter 81 or yeah. possibly later. Layton's like, what are you going to tell the customs people about this monkey I've tied up in the back of the plane? And yeah. he gives an incredible speech. It's really good. It's so good. Your Honor, forgive an eccentric old knight for his foolish prejudice for the British court system. I realize I should have called the French authorities, but I'm a snob and do not trust those laissez-faire fr- French to prosecute properly. This man almost murdered me. Yes, I made a rash decision, forcing my manservant to help him, sorry, to help me bring him to England. But I was under great stress. Mea culpa. Mea, Mea culpa. culpa. And I just have like a little heart drawn next <laughs> to it. It's very good. I like that. That's, he's, 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 one thing Dan Brown is very good at is writing the insanely self-entitled mindset of the incredibly wealthy. Yes. I don't think I've thought of it in this series before this, but like that whole idea of just like, you know, you're so wealthy. You've never considered the idea that a consequence might apply to you. Yeah. Dan Brown's very good at writing. Sounds that. like he went to Exeter. Sounds like he went to, yeah. <laughs> uh, Lena, do you have a grade for this section based on its level of like how Dan Brown it was? Oh, Dan Brown is, I'd give it, I'd give it a B, B Dan Brown. Yeah, I think, there, I'm, I think a, I'm in agreement. There's a lot of treasure hunting. It's exciting. Yeah. It's clue to clue to clue. It's fun. What about quality? Or like how fun Enjoyability? It is I'm yeah. also going to give it a B. I like this one. Okay. Again, because I love treasure hunts. Yeah. How about you? I'm a C for this one. Okay. Like it didn't, it like, it, I, clearly it made me angry at points, but um, <laughs> it was like not all to, it like, it wasn't like an active problem to get through. It was just like. Let's you get know, through it. Doing the yeoman's work <laughs> of rolling through. Yeah. Uh, do you have an angel for this section? Okay. There's a vibe switch here. Are you ready? It's T-Bang. I know. He was my demon Defend yourself. Last. He's just a G. He... Look, I'm not saying he didn't do bad things in the last section. He did, and they were reprehensible, and you should never talk to a woman that way. However, he's responsible for saving both Sophie and Langdon from Silas and saving the uh, cryptex from Silas, and he gave the speech at the end that I love. And also, he's responsible for getting them out of the house, into the woods, and onto the airstrip, and in England. Like, this plot does not work without him. He is moving. That's true. Yeah. My angel is Colet because, um, A, I kind of like that he's the actually good detective and B I love the fact that he's in this house as the cops are like 
going through it in baggings for evidence. He's like reading through the refrigerator, hunting for Perrier. I'm like drinking this man's Perrier. <laughs> that, that's wonderful to me. I like that a whole That's lot. good. I like that a lot too. Uh, do you have a demon for this section? Um, let me think about it for just a moment. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a, tie between fesh for being a shitty detective and like writing on his reputation i guess it's almost like a mad eye moody kind of thing where i'm i'm almost tempted to suspect that it's not actually fesh it's someone who's oh, taken like, like, yeah. <laughs> right because like people, people are like he's such a good detective but we don't see not. him be a good detective right um so yeah he's really bad at his job right now i don't know if he's like on on like some kind of sad sad kick of bad detective work uh, my other person that he would be tied with is Robert Langdon for noticing that Sophie is bad and being like, why don't you tell me about the sex right you saw your <laughs> grandfather participate in? That's not great. Yeah. Uh, my demon is Silas because he had a prime opportunity to kill Robert Langdon and just fucking end <laughs> this. And he didn't do it. Um, yeah, he gun butted him. Yeah. What the fuck? Pistol whipped him and said, just fucking doing the deed. Um, please follow us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Dan Brown code pod. You did it. <laughs> Our email address is something that we should it's read also, out on the it's, podcast. It's Dan Brown code pod at gmail.com. It's in the the show notes. It's in the show notes for every one of the episodes. For all, So for all of you complaining that it's not in, that you don't know what our email is, it's in the show notes. And, uh, I spend so much time writing those. We're really ripping on Heather this week, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> um, one, one, of our, one of our three loyal listeners. I love you guys a lot. I'm just telling you that, like, read the show notes. I actually do put effort uh, into them. It's true. I enjoy them. Um... <laughs> Follow um, us personally on Twitter. Yes, follow me at Lena Jamili, L-I-N-A-J-E-M-I-L-I. Follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Wishbone Ulysses. Yeah, Wishbone Ulysses. Next episode, we're going to finish The Da Vinci Code it's once so and work. for all, not counting the movie. Do you see how much more? It's a, it's a significant little sliver of pages. Oh, God. I'm we're recording it in like two days. <laughs> Yeah, um, we'll see how punchy we are in two days. Who, who knows, guys? And then I'm going to travel abroad and watch the Da Vinci Code film during that time. Um, and then we'll come back and do that. Yeah, it's going to be great. It's going to be so good. We are really looking forward to watching the Da Vinci Code film, which is apparently worse than Angels and Demons. Yeah. Oh, and I guess admin note, um, after Da Vinci Code, there's... The possibility of going on to the lost symbol but i kind of thought maybe it would be fun to split the robert langdon books with the other two dan brown novels pre-robert langdon and do like um digital fortress next mm-hmm. and so uh if anyone has any opinions on whether we should just go through langdon and then circle back to the other ones or whether we should sprinkle them throughout let us know if you have thoughts on that issue. Um, I I think it would be fun to take a break from the symbology because it's really... I would love to. It's starting to grate a um, lot. The main character of Digital Fortress is also a female cryptologist. Cool. And also her, like, true husband. I can't wait <laughs> for... I can't wait to see how he writes women. I'm sure he'll do a really great job. Oh, it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Anyways, guys, have a wonderful day. Have a wonderful two weeks. Have a good one. Have a great one. Have a great summer. Hags, everybody. Yeah. What? Hags, have a great summer. Have you uh, not signed that in anyone's yearbook? No. Well, you didn't sign my yearbook, so I guess you wouldn't know. Oh.